in case you don't know, I, you know, I, I explain this sometimes, and I should do it more frequently. Children go to that building next to us. If you just let your children out of the room, and you're like, well, I'm not sure where they're going. You're here for the first time. They go to a time of children's church where we are teaching them to worship corporately. So it's kind of a process where they are going through um, teaching and training of what worship means, what giving means. Uh, they have a, a teaching time over there. And, uh, and then the last Sunday of the month, the, the children, third grade and below, are in with us. So it makes for a little bit different Sunday, that last Sunday of the month. I know I see parents kind of a little tug of war going on every now and again. But um, you know, they're just getting little small bites to uh, prepare them for corporate worship. We are uh, actually going to, this morning, we're going to begin with the message, and we will respond with worship today. And that, sometimes I find myself thinking about worship as kind of mood music. You know, let's make sure it gets us in the mood so we can receive the word. And really, um, it should never be that. You know, it does escort us into the throne room, but we can find ourselves sometimes treating it as something that it's not. And uh, this morning, I would like for us to dig into the word first and then respond in song. So... I want to begin with prayer. I want to share with you a couple things I'd like for us to pray about. Go ahead and pull your Bibles out. I know we're a little bit out of order. We all get so um, caught up in routine that um, I know this is a little bit out of order. But the order of worship is not in the Bible. Just know that. There's not like a bulletin in the Bible and first opinions that you turn to to use as a template for your own bulletin. It's, um, it should be orderly, so we're not, we're not going crazy here just to preach first. Just, uh, it's not um, that zany. But um, pull your Bible out and turn to John chapter 11. And as you're turning there, <clears throat> I want to share with you briefly where we're going to begin this morning in prayer. I'd like for us to pray for um, David Smith at Southwood Christian right down the road. I, I don't even know the guy. And uh, I should. I was convicted about that this morning. But I had to read the sign to even know who it is, the pastor. But I'd like to pray for him and his family. I'd like to pray for that church, that they are feasting this morning. And uh, that they are um, members of one another, engaging each other. And uh, truly engaging each other. And um, I want to pray for his preparation time, that he is about to deliver a strong word. And then also want to pray for Keith McCord and his family. I want need to interrupt something, though. Cody, can you turn that AC down? I'm cold, and when I'm cold, I know that you guys are going to be suffering. So I am um, tend to get a little hotter up here. Just turn it to like 71 or 72. That's AC, so don't worry. Um, but I want us to pray for Keith McCord this morning, his family. Keith, has, uh, they just placed him on hospice. And um, someone asked me the other day of just kind of expressing a desire, somebody that really has a burden for Keith, that I hope he hasn't lost hope. And I appreciated that uh, statement. And I know that Keith hadn't lost hope. Um, I'm not, not necessarily sure that it's hope of being healed. I mean, I think we're, well, that's what we all want, and that's, that's, a, that's a no-brainer. But his hope is in the Lord, and he's trusting the Lord right now. And... Um, you know, things don't look good. They really don't. We're continuing to pray for healing, but we're at the same breath. We're thanking him for a, an, an, a, a, a spiritual healing through the work of Christ and through faith in Christ alone. So um, there are some difficult days in store for them. They've already been through some difficult days, but there are more in store. And their body, their church family needs to rally. And um, there'll be ways to serve, and we just need to be looking for those. But ultimately, the the best thing we can be doing is lifting them up and really bathing them in prayer. It's hard to reconcile. I don't really know where to put it yet. If you're looking to me for where do you put this, 30-year-old man with a 7 or 8-month-old, I don't know where to put it. But I trust the Lord. And the Lord is on His throne. I'll never forget Keith McCord sitting on our couch when we first got to know him. He came and ate at our home. And he said, I don't have an explanation for it. This is after he had had it the first time and he was in remission. And he sat on our couch and he raised his fist and he said, Here's, I asked him, what have you learned? What have you learned, Keith? And he raised his fist and he said, I've learned this, that God, though you slay me, I will trust you. That's strong, man, that's strong. Let's pray for them right now. Pray for our church down the street. 
<clears throat> Lord, we want to thank you so much for our time of worship this morning. I want to pray that it'll be um, a time that brings glory to you. I pray that by grace you will create in us a people that are not here uh, to attend, but are here to feast. And uh, Lord, I pray that you have created a people who are hungry this morning. Lord, I pray the same thing for the church down the street, the uh, Southwood um, Christian Church. And I pray for Dave Smith, Lord. I, I uh, want to pray for his marriage, pray for his family. I want to pray for his time in the Word this week. And actually pray that in this time this week, as he's engaged you, that you've wrecked him. And that it'll be manifest this morning as he delivers a Word that will change a people. And um, we'll bring glory to you. Lord, I pray that if we can serve with them and partner with them in any way, that uh, you'll give us a, a picture of what that looks like. And Lord, I pray that you'll give us a burden for their uh, walking with you and just guard us from ever having a spirit of competition with any church in this community. Lord, we confess a shared, um, a shared gospel, a shared Lord, and a shared empty tomb. And we just pray that you'll find us in a true spirit of partnership with other churches. I want to pray for Keith McCord this morning, Lord. We, uh, we want to just pray for a divine peace right now and a divine trust. Lord, we continue to beg for a healing. We know that you are able. We confess that. We have complete faith in your ability. But we don't have a clear picture of what your will is. And we share the desire of our heart, like Christ shared, of having this cup pass from him. We ask that this cup will pass from Keith. But yet we trust that it's not our will but yours. And Lord, we, um, we just pray that you'll bathe that family in uh, peace right now and in grace and trust. I pray that they will see a people that are rallying around them and that are, uh, are walking this journey with them. And I pray that Keith will live and love well. And I pray that he will persevere to the end, whenever that might be, whether it's soon or whether it's um, a long time from now. We thank you so much for the hope and the assurance and trust that we have in Christ and him alone. We turn this time over to you for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. John chapter 11. <clears throat> Starting in verse 44. <clears throat> the man who had died came forth bound hand and foot with wrappings. And his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Therefore, because Lazarus had been raised from the dead, he had been dead for four days... Because Christ raised him from the dead, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what Christ had done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told, the things, told them the things which Jesus had done. Therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing for this man's performing many signs? If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. John, the writer of the book of John, goes on to comment on what Caiaphas has just said. A man has spoken in ignorance, spoken the truth, and a deep prophecy that impacts us too, here in verse 51. Now, he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. What we've been doing these last few weeks is we've been bathing in this prophetic word from Caiaphas. Again, he's speaking, spoken in ignorance, but there's so much truth behind that that we just said, let's camp out for a few weeks. Let's camp out. Turn me down a little bit. I'm, I'm loud to myself. Let's camp out for a few weeks and let's climb into this canyon of truth about this sacrifice and this death and let's understand it better. Let's understand what took place on the cross and walk away different people as a result. So in some ways, John chapter 11 has escorted us into the rest of the Scripture. It has been a tour guide to books like Leviticus and Exodus and Ezekiel and Hebrews and places like that. A few Sundays ago, we began this climb into this canyon with kind of sticking on the lip of the canyon and considering the word expedient and how Caiaphas' handling of Christ was his treatment of Christ. Let's handle him by killing him. And the other uses of the word in the New Testament, the same uses of that word where Caiaphas says expedient are words where God is saying that we are to be handled by Christ. These radical words. 
life-shattering, us-shattering, us-undoing sort of treatments of that word. But then when we climbed into the canyon, we began to consider, first of all, the sacrifice. What kind of sacrifice took place here? What is this speaking of? And we went and looked at this passage through the lens of Leviticus. And we considered that in Leviticus, that God explains to a people, the book of Exodus ends with God dwelling among an unholy, unclean people. And then the book of Leviticus explains how that's going to happen. The book of Leviticus explains how a holy God can dwell with an unholy people and says that the way that's going to happen is that something is going to die. That when an unholy people and an unclean people are going to cohabitate, are going to live and dwell among a holy God, that their holiness must be achieved through a purchase of life. And then what we considered was that Christ was that purchase for us and that he didn't come bearing uh, bags of money, He didn't spend a period of time in prison. He came and died. The nature of the sacrifice was death. And then the next Sunday, this last Sunday, we considered the nature of the death. If the first Sunday was the nature of the sacrifice, and that being death, and the next Sunday is the nature of the death, this was this last Sunday, we considered that his death was substitutionary. That his death was like the deaths, like the book of death, Leviticus, where you bring your offering to the temple time and time again. How many passages did we read where we bring your offering to the temple and then your offering, that animal, that unblemished, that innocent, that you bring to the high priest and you lay your hand on that animal. And then in so doing, what you're doing is saying, this animal is taking my place. I'm placing my sins and my guilt on this unblemished, innocent. And he is becoming my substitute. What we considered last week is that essentially through the work of Christ, what has happened with Christ is that the one who hung the stars, the one who scooped the oceans and piled up the mountains, essentially got down on his knees. He said, come here, Ben, with your wretched, vile hand and place your hand on my head. And here, let me pass you up the knife so you can sacrifice me. I will be your substitute. What that does to the way we love and live, it should change things. Just the substitutionary nature of the atonement. Then this week, we're going to begin a three-Sunday series on the power of the death. The first Sunday was the, the nature of the sacrifice. The second Sunday was the nature of the death, that sacrifice being death. This Sunday will be the power of that death. And this Sunday, we're going to look at a word that is in the Bible. I want to say that before I... I want to qualify it before I even say it. Uh, I've asked a lot of Christians over the last few weeks, not a lot, but most, many of the Christians that I know, many of those that walk with the Lord, I've asked, do you know what the word propitiation means? And I've been, I really hadn't been surprised because before a few years ago, I didn't know what that word meant either. So don't feel like I'm coming across, I don't want to come across like a, <laughs> you don't know what propitiation means. I've arrived and I've figured it out. But I do want to come across at the beginning of this message with an urgency. And if you're sitting there, I told Christy that I was going to ask for a show of hands. And she said, don't do that. Don't do that. You make people feel stupid. So that's not what I want to do. But I do want you, if I was to ask for a show of hands, and if you were to have to say, I don't know what that means, but it's a word in the Bible, I want you to appreciate the urgency of knowing that word. Because it's not this peripheral, uninvolved, unimportant word. That word and the truth behind that word is central to the gospel. I mean, it is the meat, just like substitutionary, it is the meat and the marrow of the gospel. It is a word that every Christian should know and understand. I'm going to say that. It is a word that every Christian should know and understand because it's a little fuel cell in here, a little fuel cell that will teach you to live in love for the right reasons and to live in love in faith. So that's my goal this morning is to escort you into that word. Essentially, I'm preaching that word this morning, the word propitiation. Turn to Leviticus chapter 16. I'm not going to define the word for you yet. I'm going to read a portion of a chapter in the book of Leviticus. You know, we've been looking through the lens of Leviticus the last few weeks at the sacrifice 
And Leviticus is helping us understand context of the sacrifice of Christ and the death and exactly what it achieved. But through the lens of Leviticus, we've, um, and, and specifically in chapter 16, uh, we're introduced to this thing that's called the Day of Atonement. God gave instruction to Moses to give to the people um, about this day a year where the sins of the nation of Israel would be atoned for. And that's what the Day of Atonement is. Yom Kippur, you may have heard that term before. So this chapter is the explanation of what that is. Okay, so Leviticus chapter 16, starting in verse 2. The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron that he shall not enter at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat. Now, before I continue, I want to introduce you to a couple things. Um, first of all, I know I'm really in danger of this message coming across as academic this morning. And I'm hopefully in the next couple minutes going to escort you into making it really personal. But before I go there, before I make this next explanation, I don't want you to jettison. I don't want you to abandon ship before we get there. Um, I'm just asking you not to be lazy. And just because it's a big word or just because you're about to hear something you hadn't heard before, to just go, oh, man, I'm checking out. Please don't do that. Okay, now, the thing I want to share with you before we continue reading in Leviticus chapter 16 is that there's an early translation of the Old Testament. It's called the Septuagint. The Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Old Testament. If you know a little bit about Bible language, you know that the Old Testament is in Hebrew. But there's an early translation, it's called the Septuagint, where they took Greek and they translated from the Hebrew into Greek. And in doing that, there's some things that they did that helped me understand and help us understand the word propitiation. The way they translated the word mercy seat is the word propitiation. It is a noun for the way they're handling that word. Okay, I'm going to read it again. Tell your brother Aaron that he shall not enter at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the propitiation, which is on the ark. Now, the mercy seat, the way it's translated here, is translated directly from the Hebrew. And what the mercy seat is, it was this structure, this physical thing above the Ark of the Covenant. And you're about to see how that mercy seat is handled on the Day of Atonement, that it is, in fact, a mercy seat, and that the glory of the Lord dwells above that, inhabits that place in the Holy of Holies above the mercy seat. And I want you to just pay attention to what happens to the propitiation, to the mercy seat which is on the ark, or he will die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. Aaron shall enter the holy place with this, with a bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen tunic, and the linen undergarment shall be next to his body, and he shall be girded with the linen sash and attired with the linen turban. These are holy garments. Then he shall bathe his body in water and put them on. He shall take from the congregation of the sons of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Then Aaron shall offer the bull for the sin offering, which is for himself that he may make atonement for himself. That word in the Septuagint is the verb propitiation. So that he may propitiate himself and for his household. You See how these passages are all tied together. This passage in John 11 has been typed. Christ is all in the Old Testament. And when we take the time but to dig in, we'll discover these riches. So don't be lazy and stick with me. That he may make atonement for himself, that he may propitiate for himself and for his household. He shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. Then Aaron shall offer the goat on which the lot for the Lord fell and make it a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot for the scapegoat fell shall be presented alive before the Lord to make propitiation upon it. I'm going to read that again, that last verse. But the goat on which the lot for the scapegoat fell shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement, to make propitiation upon it. Remember, I hadn't defined propitiation yet. I'm just offering you colors and hues and shapes and shadows to where in a moment... When it's defined, this will crystallize. And then we'll move into the meat of the message. To make propitiation upon it. To send it into the wilderness as the scapegoat. Then Aaron shall offer the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his household. And he shall slaughter the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself. He shall take a fire pan full of coals of fire from upon the altar before the Lord, and two handfuls of finely ground sweet incense, and bring it inside the veil. 
He shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat. That it is on the ark of the testimony. Otherwise, he will die. See, it's a good thing the mercy seat is in there. It's a, it, it's, it's a grace that the mercy seat is in there, that he can offer incense above it. And you're about to see what else he's about to do to the mercy seat. It is an act of mercy that that propitiation is in there. Remember, I still had to find it. We're just getting some images lined up. Moreover, he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side. And also in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall slaughter the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil. And do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull. The blood or the bull was for his own atonement and for his own apology, his own reconciliation, his own restitution, his own making right before the Lord just so he wouldn't drop dead. But the second thing that he's sacrificing this, um, this goat is for himself. But he's to slaughter the goat of the sin offering just like he did with the blood of the bull. He's to sprinkle it on the mercy seat in front of the mercy seat. He shall propitiate for the holy place. He shall make atonement before the holy place because of the impurities of the sons of Israel and because of their transgressions in regards to all their sins. Get that. Because of the impurities of the nation of Israel and their transgressions into all their sins. This is a result of that. This mercy seat and this treatment of the mercy seat, the propitiation that we're seeing take place. We still had not defined it, but just the images there. Those are because the nation of Israel is impure and because God is holy. This is a way to reconcile that. And thus he shall do for the tent of meeting which abides with them in the midst of their impurities. Now, I've just introduced some imagery for you. Now let me define propitiation for you. Here's the textbook definition. I'm going to give you a textbook definition and then I'm going to give you a Ben McGraw definition. Okay? Here's a textbook though because it's good. It's not as good as Ben McGraw but it's pretty good. Propitiation. A sacrifice that bears God's wrath to the end. And in so doing, changes God's wrath toward us to favor. Now, here's the Ben's abridged version definition. Something or someone who absorbs God's wrath that's due for you. It's a wrath absorber. Okay, When you think of the word propitiation, if you want to think of the word in a noun... It's a wrath absorber. If you want to think of it in terms of a verb, wrath absorbing, doing the act of wrath absorbing. Okay, so imagine Aaron. Please imagine Aaron. As Aaron's taking a bath to get ready to go in the Holy of Holies, that's where the fear of the Lord comes from. Imagine the fear that he thought as he, or that he considered as he's about to go in the Holy of Holies. As he's taking a bath, as he's put on these holy garments, as he's going into the Holy of Holies with the blood of another to penetrate the Holy of Holies, as he's placing it on the mercy seat. First of all, he's saying, thank you for the mercy seat. Second of all, he's thinking, thank you for this substitution. Thank you that that blood's not mine. And thank you that this mercy seat is propitiatory toward me. It is absorbing the wrath that's due for me just because I'm unclean and I'm in your dwelling place. Thank you so much for giving me something that will absorb my wrath. And thank you so much for this goat and for this bull and for this scapegoat, all wrath-absorbing creatures. This whole work of this chapter in Leviticus. I know it's mysterious. I know it's hard. We have it lived there. But for these people they live there. And if we can but take the time to not be lazy. And if we can eat it, we can live there for a little while and we can say with Aaron, thank you. Thank you for the propitiatory work of the uh, mercy seat. Here's my burden for this morning before we climb in. My burden this morning is for understanding that every Christian who is here this morning knows what propitiation means. And not just in an academic sense, but every Christian at least has it deposited here where over time, through rumination, through meditation, through discussion, families one with another, discussion, brothers and sisters one with another, that it will migrate from here to here. And that it will change this people from the inside out. And the same I'm begging for from me is that this realization of this propitiatory, wrath-absorbing work of Christ will change us from the inside out. Here's what I've been thinking. I told you I was going to make it personal. I've been thinking, for the guy that treats his wife like dirt, for the guy that does not love his wife as Christ loved the church, my prayer is, although we're not preaching on marriage, is that that guy who may be here this morning and 
If you're a guy and you're married, it, it's you sometimes. It's me sometimes. Okay, but it may be some of us a lot of times that all of us will find a place for this propitiation, this truth behind this word in our heart and that it will change us from the inside out. Although we're not preaching on marriage, that surrendering to the work of Christ will change us from the inside out. My prayer is for the woman who nags her husband and treats her husband like he's a loser, even though he may be. For the woman that treats him like... um, like he's a kid, instead of respecting him, instead of building him up, instead of saying, man, you can do it, that that woman will find a place for propitiation that will change her from the inside out. For that young person who is given to crystal meth, if you think that's not something that we deal with here at Crosspoint, it is. If you think we're immune to that kind of stuff, you're just out of the loop. For that person who's wrestling with drug addiction or alcohol addiction, that propitiation will find purchase right here and change that person from the inside out. That the person, the young man or old man, for that matter, who's dealing with pornography, internet pornography, that it will change them from the inside out. Propitiation will do a work. We're not preaching about that, but we're preaching to the heart. And it's my prayer that the kid that's being defiant toward his mom and dad, the youth that are crossing lines that you should not cross, or even considering it physical lines with other youth, that propitiation will find purchase in you and that it will change you from the inside out. That's my burden for this morning. This word that most of us don't know is the resource for life change. Okay, let's climb in. I want to share three things with you this morning. Turn to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32. I want to share three things this morning. Here's the first. Propitiation is necessary because God is angry. Propitiation is necessary because God is angry. I'm going to read a good portion of this chapter, chapter 32, but I want to give you a little bit of context. Moses has led the nation of Israel out of Egypt. And Moses has gone up on this mountain to spend time with the Lord. And the Lord has given Moses some real detailed instructions on how to treat each other, how to handle him how to handle your neighbors. And Moses is still on the mountain. And here's what transpires in chapter 32. Moses is about to come down the mountain. But here's what the nation of Israel is doing in chapter 32. Now remember the first point. Propitiation is necessary because God's mad. God's angry. Okay. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, Tear off your gold rings, which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Then all the people tore off the gold rings, which were in their ears, and brought them to Aaron. And he took this from their hand and fashioned it into a graving to- or with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. You know, let me stop before I continue. Every time I've ever read this before today, well, I studied before today. Every time I ever read this before this week, I thought, man, what a bunch of knuckleheads. What a bunch of boneheads. A golden calf. You know, if you're going to sin, make it at least a little bit better than a golden calf. But then I started thinking about this little laundry list that I kind of introduced a few minutes ago where I escorted us in. Remember, I made it personal? With marriages and drugs and sex and pornography. and, um, oh, and We could add all kinds of stuff. Overeating, overdrinking, laziness, gossip, um, the self-appointed fixers that want to criticize everybody, yet they're especially graceful with themselves. Man, we could go on and on and on. Those are golden calves. We would be tossing our earrings with the rest of the crew if we were there. We're just involved in a different version of what these guys are involved in. Okay, verse 6. So the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. (laughs) What a great word. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down at once, for your people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. 
They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They've made for themselves a molten calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people and behold, they're an obstinate people. Now let me alone that my anger may burn against them, that I may destroy them. And I will make of you, Moses, because you're not down there with them. I'll make of you a great nation. Then Moses entreated the Lord his God and said, Now, what you're about to hear from Moses, I'm convinced it's just because Moses hadn't gone down the mountain yet. Because you're about to see what happens when he goes down the mountain. But anyway, he entreats the Lord his God and says, O oh Lord, why does your anger burn against your people whom you've brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak, saying, With evil intent he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to destroy them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and change your mind about doing harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens and all this land of which I've spoken I will give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. So the Lord listened to Moses and changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets which were written on both sides. They were written on one side and on the other. And the tablets were God's work, and the writing was God's writing engraved on the tablets. Now when Joshua heard the sound of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There's a sound of war in the camp. But he said, No, it's not the sound or cry of triumph, nor is the sound or cry of defeat, but it's the sound of singing I hear. It came about as soon as Moses came near the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing, and Moses' anger burned. Now, maybe that's where Baptists get mad about dancing. I, that just occurred to me. We don't feel that way, in case you're wondering. Knock yourself out. Dance away. That was a tangent. I'm sorry. That was a real tangent. It came about as soon as Moses came near the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing, and Moses' anger burned, and he threw the tablets from his hands and shattered them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf which they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it over the surface of the water and made the sons of Israel drink it. Man, you talk about just desserts right there. Then Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you brought such great sin upon them? Now listen to what Aaron says. This is so lame. Aaron says, Do not let the anger of my Lord burn. You know the people yourself that they're prone to evil. For they say to me, Make a God for us who will go before us. For this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. I said to them, You can just hear Moses going, Oh, shut up, Aaron. But he continues, I said to them, Whoever has any gold, let them tear it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it in the fire, and pop, out came this calf. What a, what a little punk. Verse 25. Now when Moses saw that the people were out of control, for Aaron had let them get out of control to be a derision among their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered together to him. He said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Listen, what you're about to hear is, the God, is God's direction about how to handle this. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Moses is about to avenge a holy God. He's about to make right, make straight the crooked. Listen, every man of you put his sword on his thigh and go back and forth from gate to gate in the camp and kill every man his brother and every man his friend and every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did as Moses instructed and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. Then Moses said, Dedicate yourself to the Lord, for every man has been against his son and against his brother, in order that he may bestow a blessing upon you today. What's the blessing? The blessing is that they got to see God's wrath. That's the blessing. They got to see a glimpse of how holiness responds to sinfulness and wretchedness and golden calves and our own little versions of those. That God is rightfully angry. It's blessed to see that. You got to see a blessing this day when 3,000 of your men fell to the sword. Verse 30, on the next day, Moses said to the people, You yourselves have committed a great sin. 
and now I'm going up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make propitiation, atonement for your sins. He knew God wasn't done. Perhaps I can be a wrath bearer for your sins. You looking for Christ in the OT? There he is. Christ is all over this. Look at what's about to happen, what he says. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has committed a great sin, and they've made a God of gold for themselves. But now, if you will, forgive their sin. And if not, please blot me out from your book, which you have written. Let me be the wrath absorber. God doesn't let him do it, though. Maybe he's just saving that, because that's reserved for my son. Only my son's going to do that. The Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. But go now, lead the people where I told you. Behold, my angels shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I punish, I will punish them for their sin. Then the Lord smote the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron had made. God is angry over sin. If we were to take a poll and ask people what their impression of God is, <clears throat> or what their impression of what they think God ought to be, it would probably be more what I've found to be kind of a jolly God. Kind of a jolly, forgetful God. Almost kind of like a grandfatherly sort. I've used this illustration before. This grandfather that, you know, wears his old man t-shirt and he's smoking a cigar and he just loves his grandkids even though they're rascals, you know. Come on up in my lap here, boy. <laughs> it doesn't matter what you do. You're my grandkid. I care about you, man. I love you, boy. That's our vision of God. A jolly God. That just, I'm just, maybe he'll be forgetful. Maybe he'll be um, um, uh, just kind of, um, maybe he'll just be so affectionate toward me that he won't deal with me and reckon with me over my complete rebellion toward his name. Let's turn to Romans chapter 3, verse 25. Romans chapter 3, verse 25. As you're turning there, I want you to consider for a moment, what if God was jolly? Let's just imagine that for a moment. What if God was a jolly God that was kind of the grandfatherly sort, that was forgetful, and just kind of loved us just because we're his, and said, come on up in my lap. What if God really was like that? Then I would not want to follow that God, because that God would not reconcile things in the end. That God would not vindicate his name, and he would not vindicate his people. That God might be jolly, and he might be um, forgetful, but he's not just and holy. I would much rather follow a just and holy God that is going to vindicate himself and his name and his people, and who says, if he says, I'm coming back for you, persevere and overcome to the end, I want to make sure I'm following a holy and just God and not a jolly and forgetful God. Romans chapter 3, verse 25. We're going to understand why he did the work of the cross and how his wrath was satisfied in the work of the cross. Romans chapter 3, verse 25. I'm going to borrow the two words before verse 25. Christ Jesus for the subject. Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a wrath absorber in His blood through faith. God displayed Him publicly as a wrath absorber, but through the cross. And this was to demonstrate His righteousness. How could God not act toward a sinful man? How could he not? If he's just and he's holy, he had no choice but acting. And he acted, in fact, and he demonstrated his righteousness in the work of the cross. And that's not all he demonstrated. Let's look on. Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. We're going to talk about this in a couple of weeks, the perfection of the cross, that it actually forgave the sins past, present, and future. That that's how he was able to forbear with the sins of the people people in the 1,500 years before that, and even the sins of Abraham even before that, that's how he was able to forbear with it because of Christ's cross. And he demonstrated his righteousness in this cross. And in verse 26, for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the, at the present time, so that he would be just. Had he not identified a wrath absorber, then he would not be just. He had to take action that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Here's the reality. If he was not just and holy, and if he did not exercise his wrath and direct it toward a wrath absorber, he could not be a justifier of us. 
It would have disqualified his nature and his character of being just had he not taken action. So that's why we should embrace that and realize, yes, indeed, he is an angry God, and his wrath is all over the brutality of the cross. How else can you reconcile that? Anybody that goes to the Passion movie that does not, is not familiar with God's wrath just thought, man, boy, man just really gave that guy a terrible beating. Or maybe that was Satan. You need to realize that was God. That was God inflicting that brutality on his very own son. And his wrath is the only thing that explains that brutality. So the first thing, propitiation is necessary because God is angry. Secondly, propitiation is fueled by love. You've heard the phrase before, and it's so true that God is love. And He is. He's so love. And here's two things, two, two directions of love that will help you reconcile how a loving God can be wrathful. First of all, the wrath comes from him, His love for Himself. Since He's holy, and since He's just, and since He's God, He's going to be zealous about protecting His character. And He loves His own character, and He loves His glory and His fame. And He will not defy that for anyone. So the wrath came from his love for himself. But the propitiation, the wrath absorbing, came from his love for man. So his love has two directions. And the first one's primary. He loves himself more than he loves us. He loves himself rightfully. And he's guarding his character. But the beauty is, he made a way. Love does not forget. Love is not the jolly God that says, Oh, whatever, crawl up in my lap. Love makes a way. Love does not ignore. Love makes a way. Turn to 1 John chapter 4. <clears throat> 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. You know, the word is so helpful in helping us define the word like love. You know, because for us, you know, it, it's so funny. And doing premarital counseling with people, and I tell every single couple that I do premarital counseling with, that in reality, when you're dating, you know, you say, hey, honey, I love you. Really, what you mean more than anything, you just don't know it, is that I love me and I want you. <laughs> it's true. Anybody that's married knows exactly what I'm talking about. And that day, and that, that time where you're dating, that pre-marriage, that we have no idea what love is. We think it's this affection, this warm feeling but we can go to the Word and really understand what love is. So let's go here in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. In this is love. You want to know what love is? You're about to hear what love is. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be. He sent His Son for the purpose of to be the wrath absorber for our sins. So love was actually the the, the resource for the propitiation. There's the potential. If you just considered God's wrath and didn't understand, if we didn't have 1 John 4.10, there would be the potential for us to consider that, that the cross of Christ actually made God, who was angry toward us, wrathful toward us, now love us. And the reality was He loved us all along. The cross did not make an angry God love us. The cross was the reason that a loving God, who was also angry, demonstrated his love for us in the cross of Christ. You've got to understand where that came from and the resource for that. Christ died because he loves us, not so that God would love us. I've tried to think of an illustration, and, you know, illustrations are hard when you're talking about the gospel. When you're talking about something that God did, and some creatures are going to try and get together and illustrate what God did. It's going to be a pretty pitiful illustration. But here's my pitiful illust illustration of how wrath and love can coexist. And in fact, wrath can be a resource and propitiation can be a resource from love. Christy and I spank our kids. Okay, we're out of the closet. <laughs> we spank our kids. We, listen, I'm a believer in it. I believe that the heart is tied to the behind. There's some sort of nervous system that ties them together and I believe in spanking our kids. And there are times when I'm so frustrated with the children because I've told them clearly, this is what I expect of you, yet they've transgressed that. And I can't help but take action. If I'm going to be a parent that truly loves my child, I must take action. Now, hopefully it doesn't look like wrath, and it really doesn't. You should know that I don't scream or throw things when I'm spanking my children. I'm very much under control. 
But it's the only thing that I can think of of a place where love is the underlying current where wrath has a representation or wrath has an expression in spanking my own child. That's the only illustration I could think of to help you appreciate that love and wrath, in fact, can go right together. Now, here's the third thing I wanted to share with you this morning is that propitiation is ongoing. First of all, the first thing I shared was that propitiation is necessary. Secondly, is that it's fueled by love. And third, that it is ongoing. As I've considered the brutality of the cross and considered Christ taking our sins and bearing our sins on the tree, you know, you see the Passion movie, or we've even talk, or spoke, spoken this morning, uh, talked about it a little bit already, about the brutality of the cross, the physical suffering that we saw him bear. Now, there was an unseen suffering that was beyond the physical. And it's the unseen suffering of bearing your sins and mine, past, present, and future. And as I've thought about the agony of the cross where he cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I've thought about the agony of the cross, and I've thought about every single sin that must have clicked off over the moments. I don't know if they were sequential or all at once, but he was on the cross for a period of time. And then when that last sin had been atoned for and had been absorbed on that cross, he said, it is finished. One of the things that has ministered to me over the last couple of years in uh, beginning to get acquainted with Greek is understanding some of the truth that is unable or difficult to, uh, to get in a translation. I want to share with you the word finished. The word finished in the Greek language is in a perfect tense. It's a tense that we don't have in our language. In our English language, we have past, present, and future. Past, something happened in the past. Present, something's ongoing. Future, something's going to be in the future. A perfect tense verb is something that happens in the past and is contained in the past, but has a ripple of effects for a period of time. And whenever a writer uses a perfect tense verb, they're using it for a reason. And when Christ spoke from the cross, and this was recorded by John, it is finished. What he's saying is that that work is done. The work of the cross is finished. You cannot add to his cross. He absorbed the wrath of God. But the things will never be the same, and the ripple effects will rebound over the ages. And we're sitting here 2,000 years later in Greenville, Texas, at Cross Point Fellowship, in the middle of one of those ripples, on the receiving end of him bearing our wrath. Turn to 1 John 2.2. 2. First John 2 John 2.2 says, and he himself, speaking of Christ, is the propitiation, the wrath absorber for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. He is our wrath absorber even as we sit, as we speak, as we worship today. At the very beginning of the message, I told you I was going to hopefully make this personal. And my prayer has been, my burden has been that the man that treats his wife like dirt, that this morning through this kind of feeble attempt to present a difficult truth, that this morning, through this last point, this ongoing work of propitiation. I'm not finished, so y'all don't gather your gear up. Don't talk about lunch yet. This is probably the most important part of the message. That this work of propitiation would find purchase right here, and that it would change it from the inside out. That the man that treats his wife like dirt, or doesn't treat her at all, does not love his wife like Christ loved the church, would see the image of an all-knowing, all-seeing, holy God the same God that could have killed Aaron if Aaron didn't bathe just right, or if Aaron wasn't wearing just the right garments, or if he didn't do the incense just right. That same God has complete right to destroy us. The same God that had Moses and his crew go throughout the camp and kill 3,000 Israelites. It's been my prayer that the guy that treats his wife like dirt would see that that God sees him and knows his heart and sees everything that he's doing or not doing. And that that person that treats his wife like dirt would see Christ, our propitiation, our mercy seat, step right in front of them and say, No, Father God, remember that thing I did 2,000 years ago? I'm boring the wrath that's due. I'm bearing the wrath that's due him, Ben McGraw, 
for how he treats his wife. I'm bearing that wrath right now. It's been my prayer that the woman that nags her husband would see Christ standing between her and the Father and see Christ bearing the wrath. The person that wants to go do crystal meth again, that's done it recently, or pot, or whatever, or alcohol, or whatever, whatever, you name it, Copenhagen, I don't even care what it is, whatever it is that owns us, that that person will see Christ standing right in front of them and that Christ is saying, I, I got that, Father. I know you see them. I see them too. But remember that work that I did 2,000 years ago? I'm bearing your wrath. I'm the propitiation. I'm the mercy seat. My blood covers them and makes them right. That somehow that realization, that eating that truth, somehow feasting on that truth, and that finding a place right here would change the way we live in love. It would change the way we handle drugs, sex, pornography, marriage, all these things that are so hard, the things that bog us down, that they would actually become liberated because we're being changed from the inside out. That's been my burden. That's my prayer. Let's pray. Lord, I ask you to, um, to take this truth from our head to our hearts. Lord, I ask that moms and dads will talk about it over lunch. I ask that kids will talk about it between each other, that youth will discuss it, and they'll consider uh, what this means, that Christ bore wrath that was due for us, and that he absorbed that wrath due for us. Lord, I pray that men will talk with other men and consider how they treat their wives and consider how they treat other people. I pray that the self-appointed fixers will see that Christ died for them and that that will change them from the inside out. I pray that the gossips, I pray that the overeaters, including myself and every other thing that we fall to, that that will change us from the inside out, Lord. And that we will adore Christ more and that we'll be more like Christ as a result. We adore Him right now. We confess that His work is finished. And we are so thankful, so unspeakably thankful and grateful that the effects of that ripple right into today. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen.